0: She's the author of Negotiations, Breakthroughs and co-author of Stepping Stones to Success and several other books. To listen to previous interviews, see upcoming guests, download podcasts and learn more, visit www.conflicthealing.com. So Mari, what's your show about today?
1: Well Lloyd, today our show is about finding the trading zone and winning at win-win negotiation. And that happens to be the subtitle of this wonderful new book that I've just been reading. It's called... Good For You, Great For Me by Professor Lawrence Suskind. And the exciting thing for me to have him on is that many years ago, I think it was 15 years ago, I went to the program on negotiation at Harvard Law School after I did my own law school, and um, I took training in negotiations. And Dr. Suskind uh, was, Professor Suskind was one of my professors, and he was fabulous. And also I had Bill Urey, William Urey, who was another one who's also been on my show. And so I'm just so excited about this book. I think it has uh, a lot of breakthrough uh, theories and, and I know that it experiences that it works. And I'm just really excited. So let me tell you a little bit about Professor Susskind, who is coming to us all the way from the East Coast. Lauren Susskind is board professor of urban environmental planning at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and he's vice chair of the program on negotiation at Harvard Law School. He teaches courses on the theory and practice of participatory action research at MIT and he directs the MIT Science Impact Collaborative which is an action research laboratory involved in efforts to build collaborative adaptive management capabilities in communities in Malaysia, the Middle East, Chile, and all through the United States. His website is lawrence and suskind is spelled S U S S K I N D.com. And his blog can be accessed at the approach.com. Blogspot.com. Larry Suskine is also the founder of the Consensus Building Institute, which is a nonprofit organization that provides mediation and dispute system services to public and private clients worldwide. And he currently serves as the Chief Knowledge Officer. And I am just so thrilled. Thank you so much, Larry, for joining us.
0: You're welcome. Pleased to be with you.
1: Well, this is a great new book. And it's called Good for You, Great for Me. And and that challenges a lot of the prevailing thinking about the benefits of the, quote, win-win approach to negotiation. Can you tell a little bit about that?
0: Sure. Um, I'm delighted that the last 20, 30 years we moved from I win, you lose to let's try to find a way for both of us to come out uh, ahead and thus the emergence of win-win. My colleagues, you mentioned Bill Urey and Roger Fisher, wrote Getting to Yes, and a lot of people said, okay, you don't have to pound the other guy into the ground in order to come out okay. And so for several decades, the push has been, okay, not win-lose, win-win. My concern is uh, I think people have lost sight of the fact that even in a win-win circumstance where you're trying to let the other side come to the point where they do pretty well, Still trying to do very well for yourself. Yeah, of course. The question is how do you do that and maintain relationships? Because you're going to maybe deal with these folks again in the future. How do you find something that's good for them and great for you? That's the point of the book.
1: Yes. And you have six ways of doing it, which I love. And those are basically the six chapters. Can we kind of just quickly go over what those six chapters are? We've got, and, and I don't want to give away the whole book because I want people to read it, and it's wonderful. But, like, the first one is uh, lead them into the trading zone. So help your negotiation partner reframe their mandate and priorities. So yeah, give us the, a I hint. hear the
0: trading zone, I uh, discovered, um, needed some explanation. Yeah. Y- you know that when you're negotiating with someone that you Care about instead of just demanding stuff, you're trying to find a way to get into a rhythm or a mood or a negotiating frame where you say to yourself, Well, I I want them to feel pretty good about this. Right. So let's look for something pretty good for them and good for me. And when you're working with someone you know well, who you have a relationship with, who you're going to be dealing with forever you immediately go to that, what we call the trading zone, that area where, well, if there's going to be an agreement, it's going to be for, okay for both of us, let's just go there and then work on the details. Yeah. Whereas in most negotiations with strangers or in business negotiations or legal negotiations, you don't know whether they care about finding an outcome that's good for you. You don't know that there's even a possibility of something that's pretty good for them and pretty good for you. And so you spend all this time nibbling or making demands or pretending and waiting to see what happens. And my feeling is, let's just zoom right to the trading zone if there is one. If there's not, there's not going to be an agreement. If there is, let's say some things at the beginning and say, let's try to find the trading zone. Here's a set of questions, which I outline in the book, that you can ask and answer in a way that won't hurt you that will help you discover whether there's an area of possible mutual agreement. So finding the trading zone is what kind of questions to ask, how to make sense of what's going on, and how do you move right into that area where there's, okay, we can both get something here, now let's work on the details.
1: And I think a part of that is, is really being able to build enough trust that you will answer, ask these questions and answer the questions, right? I mean, people, when you were talking about how, when you've known somebody a long time, you can get right to the trading zone because you've already established trust, right?
0: Well, it's, it's, uh, problematic. Yeah. It's problematic. I mean, it's, If we know each other and we have a good reason to trust each other,
1: right? right. Yeah.
0: Trust is established. We zoom into the trading zone. We work out the details. But what about when you're dealing with a stranger?
1: Right. You don't have that trust.
0: You don't have a basis for the trust. And what, what I say in the book is, I don't think you should start out being trusting Right. In the hope that they will reciprocate in the hope that now you can get into the trading zone where something good is going to happen for both of you. Right. But I do think you need to be trustworthy. Yes. And I think there are ways of behaving, especially at the outset of negotiations, where instead of making outrageous demands, instead of bluff, instead of things that you do when you don't know if there's a trading zone, you don't know if you can trust the other side, I believe there's a set of things you can do that establish trust as you're negotiating, because you can't wait until you have a great relationship with someone in order to start the negotiation.
1: Right, right.
0: So what I spell out in the book are almost the scripts that you can use, and you won't have to say things that aren't true, Right, right. won't have to reveal things that will be problematic to you if they know that. And yet, they will work to build trust through this process of exchange. And what, I, what I've what i learned the hard way over three or four decades is that a lot of people can't let themselves do that. Sorry, I'm just too vulnerable. Sorry, they're going to exploit me. Sorry, I, I can't tell them the kinds of things you're saying I should tell them. And so they always get stuck outside the trading zone. And then when they get lousy agreements or no agreements, sometimes they win big. but. Often they get no agreement. They don't realize they're walking away from lots of pretty good agreements because they're not prepared to assume that I should act in a trustworthy way, even if I don't have a basis for trusting you.
1: Right, right. Because then you build the trust on the other side, then they're more likely. I mean, if someone acts trustworthy, you're more likely to act in a trusting manner, right? Precisely. Exactly.
0: Precisely. And you'd think that's obvious, but not.
1: No, no. Yeah. And I remember playing the, the, the game that we played, um, uh, win as much as you can. I remember playing that at, at Harvard, and that was really fun because people didn't know each other. And how were they, if you acted trustworthy, what was going to happen? And then uh, that was a, a fun game to, to do. And I've actually used that in my own negotiation classes because trust becomes an issue. But if you act trustworthy, then people will trust you. So, that's and, cool. and there
0: are two I, that I describe in some detail with lots of examples in the book. There are two ground rules for me that describe the basis of trustworthy behavior. They're very simple statements. The first is, say what you mean. If you have bad news to deliver, deliver yeah. it. Don't dress it up. Don't pretend it's something that it's not, because when they figure out that it's not what you were saying originally, then they say, why should I trust you? And you say, well, I was trying to protect you and not hurt your feelings. (laughs) Nope, I can't trust you. So the first step in being acknowledged or being seen as someone who's trustworthy is to uh, say what you mean. And the second rule, equally simple, is mean what you say. Mm Mm-hmm. Don't make a promise unless you're 100% sure you can keep it. Because when you say, I'm, I'm confident that great proposal you made, I can take it back to my side, and I'll come back to you tomorrow, and we'll have a draft of the agreement. And then you go back, and your people say, oh, you got them this far? Go get more. Right. You show up the next day, and they say, what is this? You told me we had an agreement. Well, it wasn't 100% up to me. I tried. I don't believe you anymore. You're not trustworthy.
1: Right. Yep. You have egg on your face. Mean uh-
0: what you say. Right. Now, when I say that to people in big deal business negotiations, I'm helping them prepare. They say, what do you mean? Tell them the truth? <laughs> and I said, well, don't make statements that are false. They said, but then you say telling them the truth, telling them everything. I said, not tell them everything. <laughs> you don't have to tell them everything. And you can even say when someone says, so what's the least you'll take? You say, I'm not going to answer that. Right. I say, what's the most you'll pay? You going to answer that? <laughs> So you don't answer everything, but you don't make statements that aren't true in the hope that you're building momentum and you'll get what you want. Because, as you said, trust is important, and I guarantee you, you will not be seen as trustworthy if you don't say what you mean and mean what you say.
1: Yeah, and that's so important as mediators, too, because we're sitting there as the monkey in the middle of all of these uh, divergent views, and they have to trust us. And I know you have worked as a mediator forever in many great disputes in the public arena. So, you know, why do you think that people aren't using mediation more? I know it's really grown by leaps and bounds here. When I first started mediating back in 19... Eighty six <laughs> people thought I was meditating. You know, they didn't know what that was. You know, and um, and but no, I mean, there's still we don't use that to settle um, political disputes in the United States. Why? Why do you think that is?
0: Well, it's to me, it's a puzzle. It's a big puzzle because I can show people reports, research details documented evidence that when there's a series of cases, those that are mediated, that is, with a neutral party acceptable to both sides who assists them in their negotiation, we're not talking about arbitration, we're not talking about someone imposing anything on them, that they will come out with something that saves time, saves money, and gets them better results than what they were likely to get otherwise. I can demonstrate that statistically, econometrically, every kind of a way. And people say, yeah, 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 but not in my stories, not in my cases. Yeah. say, why do you think that your story's so separate, so different? Oh, you should see the person I have to deal with. <laughs> and they'd never accept a mediator. There's nobody who would be plausible who would be acceptable to both sides. Like, did you try? There's a lot of mediators. You could interview a bunch of people. You couldn't find one, then okay, but you didn't even try. Oh, there's nobody. <laughs> we have the problem first of people saying, There's something about my dispute that's so special that even if you could prove to me that adding this extra party is not telling anyone what to do, speeds things up, produces better results, builds better relationships, not me. And then when you say, well, why don't you even just try? Oh, you couldn't find anyone. And then when we finally get to the point in in an area where there hasn't been mediation and we have some mediations, a number of people become quickly true believers and try to get the rest of their sector or their group or their area or their community to use it. And then they'll find someone who says, oh, my God, you don't even know what you gave away by going into that mediation.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's like.
0: And they don't understand. (laughs) They don't know what it is. They just assume that any kind of peaceful resolution, any kind of collaborative process, any effort to take the needs and interests of both sides seriously can't produce a good outcome for them. That's the book because I believe in all of these efforts at collaboration and joint problem-solving and mediation. But I also think we need to be realistic and say, how can we commit to that? How can we bring that into realms where it hasn't been used before, but also understand that that doesn't mean there's not a competitive aspect to what's going on and that everybody isn't going to just divide everything equally, right. in, in my mind, nor should they. And so we have to to take people through this whole conversation over and over again because it's not what they learned along the way in everyday life.
1: Right, and and sometimes they think that they'd rather be right than happy. <laughs> and the other one is they think if they're going to go into mediation, it means that they have to cave. They have to cave on all their important interests, which is really not the case. So, And then some people still, even out here, they confuse mediation with arbitration, lots of times. Oh, well, I don't want to go in and just have somebody uh, tell me what to do and then I can't even appeal it, you know, to any court. And I go, wait a minute, you're talking about arbitration. This is mediation. This is voluntary. This means that you can get up and walk out any time that you feel that it's not working for you. So, yeah, it's it's crazy. You know, I think part of it is we we see all these TV shows on you know, Judge Judy and all these other things, but we don't see anything on mediation, very rarely. I think the only one I ever saw was um, in in some movie where it was really not even very much like a real mediation anyway.
0: Oh, no, there was a show, was on for one year, and the the young woman who was the mediator was working in a law firm, and she was conflicted out in almost every single dispute. Mm Mm-hmm. Took on in the, in the stories. I mean, I don't know who was advising them. Yeah. Absolutely misrepresented
1: mediation. So the yes. one time there was a show. That's true. That's true. It was horrible. I think we need to have you have a show. I actually, <laughs> with a fellow named
0: John Marks who started Search for Common Ground, we tried some uh, time back to produce some examples of what a half hour yeah. mediation show would look like, and we used the title of his organization. So the show was called Search for Common Ground. Yeah. And the idea was you take all the toughest disputes, right? Yeah. Gun control, uh, right to life. You take, take every dispute, and you bring spokespeople on the two sides together with the mediator. Right. You model for a half an hour exactly. what the conversation would look like if people had to demonstrate that they respected and understood the other side's view, and then they searched for things that they could actually support jointly in spite of their differences. And we, we created six shows, and we took them around to the various commercial channels. And they said, who would watch this? Where's the conflict? Okay. <laughs> Resolving all been differences. Nobody's going to watch that.
1: Well, how about PBS?
0: Well, that was on PBS. Uh, some long time ago, uh, probably two in the morning. Oh. uh, And then we we tried to find a commercial sponsor that would support it because we had grants to do it. The problem is that, from a media standpoint, who's going to watch people working out their differences? At least that's the presumption. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Newspapers think the same thing. What's the story? The story is who punched whom? Right. Who shot whom? What's the conflict? How many times do you see a story that says, an ingenious agreement with reached <laughs> between these competing interests right i mean i you, you mentioned that there are these six different strategies besides finding a trading zone
1: yeah we in got... the book
0: one of them is the idea of using contingent agreements. Mm-hmm. i work on climate change issues i work with communities that are struggling to decide what to do coastal communities what they're going to do because if there's level rise, and if there's increasing storm intensity, right. uh, a lot of what we know as their place is going to be destroyed. Just look at what happened with Storm Superstorm St- Sandy in the Northeast.
1: Right, right. And
0: so community gets together, and people said, you can't tell me what I can do with my private property. I'm going to do what I want here along the coast. And you say, well, if there's a giant storm, uh, do you want an emergency evacuation to be possible? You betcha. <laughs> Uh, And if there's some destruction of all the roads and the power systems and you're stuck in your house and you have no water, no electricity, uh, what would you like to have happen? (laughs) Well, I want someone to put the electricity back on. I want somebody to make sure the water's clean. And and how do you think that's going to happen if we don't make some collective efforts now to deal with the possibility of these big impacts? What if these things happen, would you agree that if they're going to happen, these are the agreements we should make? We should invest this much, go this far, do this, monitor it, and see what happens. Even if you don't think this is sure to happen, if it were to happen, wouldn't it be worth doing this? Those are what we call contingent agreements. So we stop debating, do you believe in climate change?
1: Right, it doesn't matter it doesn't which, matter exactly, exactly. yeah if we it's began a contingency to
0: focus on yeah. contingent agreement if the level continues to rise this much by this time then we should make investments in sea walls or buying people out who live in this area or, or hardening different kinds of facilities so that they're not so susceptible to storms and so on if you'd stop Debating what you can't know to be the truth about the future and negotiate a variety of agreements, contingent agreements. And you put them all into the agreement. Yes. If this happens next year, then okay, we agree to that. But if this doesn't happen, then we don't do that. So we've just made an agreement even though we disagree entirely about the future. And we shift the focus from okay, everybody compromised, let's agree on a version of the future.
1: Right, right, right.
0: Let's make contingent. Now, you look at how many business agreements make different assumptions about the future and have appendices that say, well, if the market does this, then this is our deal, right. and here's how it changes, but if the market does, if there's, there's none. They say, let's predict what the market's going to do, and they <laughs> fight about it, and they wrestle each other to the ground to a compromise position, and they make one deal. There's no reason to do that, even though it is a little more work, to lay out contingent so I've
1: tried and, to, and, it, and it really prevents such chaos in the event of something happening, you know, whether it's an earthquake or whether it's climate change or whether it's water issues. That, you know, I mean, I worry about that. If there's a huge drought, what are we going to do with the, you know, are we going to have water? What's going to happen with Africa with no water? Well, we, you
0: have a huge drought in California. Yeah.
1: Yeah, we do. I know. I know. We and, already you know, have if, our plans about...
0: If, if somebody out. brought together all the different groups, that have a stake in the future of water in California. Yeah.
1: You've got
0: a lot of different farmers and you've got a lot of different cities and you've got a lot of different industries and so on, and people concerned about the, the environment and the flows in the river. And you brought people together and you said, if this much water is only available, what do we agree should be the allocation for a period until there's a different amount of water? Right. We, we, didn't have, we don't have contingent water agreements. We have senior water rights. And the people who bought it can do what they want with it, even if there's not as much for everybody else. And if we negotiated contingent agreements, which would then be monitored and changed over time. In, in California, I'm not, you know, I'm not the, as knowledgeable about everything that goes on in your state as you are, but in California, the vast amount of water goes to agriculture. Right. But the, if you look at the contribution to GDP of the state, agriculture doesn't produce a, even a small percentage of the GDP compared to the percentage of the water that it uses. And if you ask, and what's it using most of the water for? It's using it to irrigate. Crops. Why? So you have crops to feed and sell.
1: Right.
0: Oh, well, what are you growing with the water? Well, what's the single largest crop? Alfalfa. Right. The most water hungry crop you could grow. Yep. Well, if you're short of water, shouldn't you change? <laughs> but you're grow- Well, you can't tell me. I have the water rights. I <laughs> bought them a-, a long time ago. I can do what I want. So we don't create the right forum in which there can be joint problem solving mediated. Yes. Mm-hmm. to produce contingent agreements that take account of the conflicting interests and needs instead we fight it out in court or we fight it out in the in the courtroom of public opinion and uh the problem doesn't get solved
1: yes yeah. You know, you're you're so good at all of this. You know, I got to bring you back to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that's been going on for God knows how many years. So is there something that they can do that that would actually change and shift the energy for them? Is it the same kind of thing looking at maybe contingencies or what do you think should happen over there?
0: Well, I, I can't pretend to know what should happen. Honestly, uh, we've all watched with great pain and dismay all mm. summer. Yeah happened um, in Gaza and in Israel, and you look at it and you say, isn't something possible? And then you get the short-term mediated ceasefire.
1: That doesn't last very no, long. but
0: if you go back, right, we did have an agreement in Oslo, mm-hmm. and the agreement addressed some of the issues, and it put off the most difficult issues for subsequent work, and the agreement was reached in secret, right, in, in, in Scandinavia, with people who were authorized to make a deal. They came back and announced it. And the problem was that all of the people below in the social totem pole, below those who negotiated the deal, weren't part of making those commitments and agreeing to change all the rules, procedures, relationships that would have had to change. And so what happened was you have what my friends in Holland would call a thin ice agreement. It was at one level, but it didn't have below it all the support of all the people involved. And the people who are doing the most important peacemaking work, even this month, in the face of everything and all the deaths that have happened in the last several months, are the ones who are trying to bring people together on the ground at edges where they share a common interest and trying somehow to build up the kind of relationships, the kind of understandings between people that can, in fact, lead to a bottom-up agreement. If we're going to wait for a top-down agreement in the Middle East or one imposed by the rest of the world, it's not going to happen. And even though I'm talking about something that looks to be an enormous amount of work and is going to take a considerable amount of time, uh, that's true under any circumstance. Yes. And there needs to be the kind of grassroots Peacemaking efforts in which larger and larger numbers of people, usually, right, if you look at Northern Ireland, usually women on both sides who say, enough of our children being killed. Yes. And and there's so much pain right now and so much anger and so much frustration and no place to channel it. And people Mm -hmm. are waiting for the international community to say, what should happen. The only thing that will work in the long term is some kind of bottom up effort. But right now there's there's no there are no channels to make that at a large enough scale. People are seething. People are angry. They've only heard their side's words in the last few months. There's and so there needs to be some kind of grassroots effort led by people who are not elected and appointed and it needs to be massive numbers of people who say we can't live with this killing we yeah. can't wait for the people above us to solve this and we are going to start working things out at the
1: grassroots level yeah
0: level. I, I personally i don't know what else can work
1: no and you know we are out of time so i think if everybody was reading your book and had a little bit of you in them, and a little bit of uh, time to watch some of the mediations that you were doing. I think that would help shift the whole world. But you are wonderful. We have this great book by Lawrence Suskind called "Good for You, Great for Me: Finding the Trading Zone and Winning at Win-Win Negotiation." And you want to just give your uh, your blog and your website, and then it's time for us to go.
0: Okay, um, people could just Google my name, Lawrence suskind they will find the blog the consensus building approach.blogspot.com that you mentioned at the top um if you people google my name and want to see the work we're doing they can see it through the program on negotiation through the consensus building institute and through the science impact collaborative and all the details of all the work we're doing are on the web pages which come up if people just
1: look at my name and Thank you so much for all the great work you're doing. And thank you for being my professor many years ago. And I'm just thrilled with this book. It's fantastic. And you're doing a great job. So thank you so much. And we'll have you back again, okay?
0: You're very welcome. Great to talk to you.
1: Okay, bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org. On the net, I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8.30 a.m., right here on KUCI and visit our website at ConflictHealing.com. Thanks.
0: The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.